We're going to look at God's word together and look at that, um, that story in a bit more just for a few minutes this morning. Should we, should we pray though before we look at God's word together? Father God, we thank you that we can worship you. We thank you, Lord, that we can, we can laugh, we can um, enjoy the stories in your word, and that, Father, we can be challenged by them as well. So just really pray, Lord, that you'll be with us um, the next few minutes as we just look at these couple of chapters in Daniel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm going to keep glancing to my left to make sure no one sneaks up and picks up the boo one, holds it behind me. Um, yeah, I thought I'd put three down there. Uh, perhaps someone's already taken it. Let me ask you a question. And uh, you've, already, you've already reacted loudly, so please feel free to be loud if you agree with what I'm about to ask you. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. Yeah, that's good. That's the sort of reaction I was hoping for. Is he your Lord and Saviour? Yes. Yeah, that's uh, good. That was like less than the second one. Okay. Is he your number one? Yes, that's good. <laughs> Will you worship him only? Yes. Good. Sure, that's good. Now, imagine that you're a Christian in Iraq. Imagine that this morning ISIS uh, rolled into your village and painted this on the front door of your house. A sign, uh, uh, actually letter N, that stands for Nazarene, which is a derogatory term. It's meant to be a derogatory term. Much like when Christians were first called Christians at Antioch, it wasn't a compliment, it was an insult. You Christians. And then imagine somebody from that group asking you the same set of questions. Yet this time, it's not from the fun-filled service in Sorbidworth. It's with the sobering consequence of convert to Islam or die. I wonder how you'd respond that way around. What would you say? Sadly, this is the choice our brothers and sisters face across the world, not just in Iraq and Syria, but in places in South America, in Africa, Russia at times as well, over and over and over again. It has been the same for 2,000 years. Last week, Mark and Julie, I'm told, introduced us to a man named Daniel who we've heard about this morning and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And you've got to feel sorry for poor old Mark Kimber there in that reading. How many times can one man say Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego <laughs> in, one, in one reading from the Bible? So I'm going to refer to them as them, I think, from now on. But we've heard about Daniel and his three friends and uh, three, four young Hebrews who were taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, modern-day Iraq, there's the link. And they were taken in the first wave of exiles. The way that the Babylonians did it was they would come to a country, they would starve them, and they would take their brightest and best first. The idea would be that you would bleed a country of its brightest minds, leaving only those who perhaps weren't as academic as the rest. The idea being that you kind of, in their minds, dumbed the nation down so that you took the best for you. And then what they would do is they would take them off to Babylon and they would spend years indoctrinating them in Babylonian values, in its culture, in its religion. And they would also feed them the very best. You know, Daniel's given all the best food. The idea is to try and turn their mind so they become Babylonian and not Jewish, not Hebrew. And as they enter the king's service in chapter 1 and all the way through this book, it is always very much convert to Babylonianism or die. How things don't change for God's people. Isn't that always the choice people who are being persecuted face? Convert, change, reject Jesus, or die. This book of Daniel is truly amazing. If you've never read it, you really should. Uh, written about 600 BC. It has actually three languages in it. Um, you've got Aramaic, you've got Hebrew. In fact, it changes halfway through, which is really interesting. And there's a, a dash of Greek. 
um, in there as well. And it t- details the life of these four people in captivity, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're taken off from their homeland, never to return, and taken off to Babylon to be brainwashed into Babylonian society. And really, we're hearing the story of these four friends and their attempt to remain faithful to God in a culture that is opposed to the God they follow. And I believe there are going to be some sobering lessons as we go through the book of Daniel over the next few weeks. Chapters 1 to 6 are more of the historical side, so they tell you about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the things that happened to them, more of a historical account. And then in chapter 7, the whole book changes, as does its language. And then you have these series of visions that were given to Daniel about the future, the immediate future of what would happen after the Babylonian Empire came to an end, and then even further still, looking forward towards the the, uh, arrival of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem on that first Christmas, and then hinting further still his return at the end of time. This book and the message of it is actually quite straightforward, despite its complicated context. It is actually a message that says to its readers that we must remain faithful to God in difficult circumstances. So many Christians give up on what's been true for 2,000 years because its culture says it's no longer true. So many Christians, when they get a bit of opposition and tension, worry and kind of go with the crowd. The message of Daniel is to be faithful even when your culture doesn't agree with you to be faithful to God in difficult circumstances. Another message of this book is a very clear one, not one that we like to say, but it's true, is that God will judge the nations. Our God will judge the nations of this earth. People don't just get to live their lives and commit great atrocities around the globe. God will judge the nations. That's a message all the way across the Bible, that he will hold everybody to account. And the final message is that God's own kingdom will come. This whole book is about the kingdoms of men. We've got three kings in the first uh, six chapters, or first five chapters, and each of them have a kingdom. But the message is over and over and over that God has a kingdom, and God's kingdom will have no end, whereas theirs is temporary. And that's a message that our brothers and sisters across the world need to hear. People like ISIS will have an end. They are in terminal decline. They just don't know it yet. All the ungodly empires that persecute anybody will end God's kingdom is the only one that lasts forever and we say hallelujah for that and we belong to that kingdom not these kingdoms that are only temporary so we're going to be looking at chapter 2, 3 and 4, we won't read it all Um, we'll just dip into bits of it I'm going to hope that you know some of the story but I'll kind of tell you about it now but these three chapters tell us about Daniel and his interactions with Nebuchadnezzar who if you'll pardon the expression is a nutcase an absolute bonkers leader. And if you ever have to meet anyone like Nebuchadnezzar, just run in the opposite direction because he's just crazy with power. That's the only way I could describe him. And we're going to look at the next three weeks of these three kings that we read about in the first five chapters. And each king has a different challenge. Three kings, three challenges. So let me just tell you, give you a rough uh, outline of these three chapters. If you've got the Bible open, you can follow along, but I'm not going to refer to any verses. So in chapter 2... After the whole meat and veg thing that we looked, talked about last week, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a, falls asleep and has a dream. And in his dream, he sees a large statue. Uh, its head is made of gold. Its chest, of arms and, uh, chest and arms are made of silver. Thighs are made of bronze. Legs of iron. And then feet are a mixture of iron and clay. In his dream, a large stone cut out of rock, not by human hands, strikes the statue 
and the statue like that topples and just crumbles to dust and then the only thing that is left is a rock which in his dream gets bigger and bigger and bigger till it covers the whole earth. This king Nebuchadnezzar is so bothered by this dream that he calls in all of his magicians and advisors and he doesn't tell them the dream. Um, No, what he says is, you tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. And they're like, you're kidding. We can't tell you the dream. Tell us it first. And then he gets quite angry and says, well, I'm going to kill you if you don't tell me the dream. In fact, I'm going to chop you up into little pieces and burn your house down. He's like the big bad wolf, um, but worse, obviously. Um, And so he's just angry, he's paranoid. Uh, and so he threatens to kill these, uh, these advisors, these magicians who obviously can't tell him his dream. Daniel, however, steps up from the sidelines and volunteers himself into danger and says, I'll tell you what the dream is. He gets Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to pray and ask for God's mercy on him. And then he tells him that God can interpret dreams, not men. And then he tells Nebuchadnezzar that these, this dream, this statue are successive kingdoms that will come after his the gold head is the Babylonian kingdom, he says. And then he said, the silver one, the bronze, the iron, and the feet mix of iron and clay are kingdoms that will follow one after the other. And the consensus generally is that what these kingdoms refer to um, is that the gold statue, or the gold head, of course, is the Babylonian empire. The silver one is the Medes and the Persians that came afterwards, which you read about in um, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, the bronze uh, legs are meant to represent, understood to re- represent the Greek Empire, which of course was massive, and Alexander the Great. Uh, and then the legs of iron, of course, kind of refer to the Roman Empire. And the, the one at the bottom, the mixture of iron and clay with the feet, um, opinions quite divided. So I'll let you work that out for yourself. The rock, of course, is God's kingdom that arrived with Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus, when he came to earth, said, The kingdom of God has come. But it came in that, like a seed, a tiny seed that grew and grew and grew. And that rock grew and grew and grew in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and took over the whole world. God's kingdom will inhabit the whole of the earth eventually, one day. So, it's a, a, so he does that. So Nebuchadnezzar's blown away. Um, but what he does, uh, rather than re- react the way you think he might, he then wakes up the next morning, I think, and builds himself a statue, very similar to that one, except it's all gold. We'll come on to that in a minute. And then he makes a, a very measured decree saying that everyone's got to bow down when you hear the harp and the lyre and the tambourine. If you don't bow down at my statue, I'm going to kill you, chop you into pieces and blow your house down. There he is. And so as it goes, um, Daniel was in the king's court, so he slightly avoided all this. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are out in the province of Babylonia. The music is played. Everybody bows down. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refuse to because they only worship the king of kings, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, our God. Um, They refuse to do it. It's quite a tough thing to do, isn't it? Can you imagine everybody bowing down and you're the only three and you're thinking, this is not going to end well, is it? This is going to end badly for us. Um, But that's how they were. They refused to bow down to a false idol. They worshipped their own God only. Um, They're taken out um, and chucked in the fiery furnace. When we read about the fourth person, they're called back out. Uh, That fourth person is universally understood to be an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. If you're under the impression that Jesus didn't exist before Christmas uh, 2,000 years ago, you are in fact incorrect. Uh, He is the eternal Son of God. He is God the Son who has been forever. He had no beginning and Christ will have no end. He became flesh that first Christmas, but he was around before 
and he will be around to the end of time and eternity because he has no beginning and no end, just like God the Father, just like God the Holy Spirit. He is one God. And so Jesus is recognized to be the one in the fire with these three friends. So they're called out, they're promptly promoted, and uh, and Nebuchadnezzar makes another law that everyone's got to follow. Daniel's God and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, or he's going to kill them, chop them to pieces, and blow their house down. You can see the kind of guy we're dealing with. Um, Chapter 5, um, sorry, chapter 4, and the tone changes. He has another dream uh, where God basically warns him to not be arrogant about his kingdom that he's built, the Babylonian Empire. He then becomes quite arrogant, and God opposes him, and he spends seven years having lost his mind in the wilderness uh, before getting it all back because he gave the glory to God. There, whistle-stop tour through three chapters. I'm sure you kept up. Um, so there are more plot twists in the book of Daniel and these three chapters in an episode of EastEnders, frankly. Um, and so just a few things I wanted to bring out this morning just for a few minutes because there are a few things that, as they interact with this volatile king, that actually probably mean something to us a long time later. The first is that we see the power of power in these chapters. Nebuchadnezzar looms large in this story. He is the king, he is the boss, and what he says goes. And he doesn't like anyone dissenting or disagreeing. It's a terrible quality in a leader. Yet what we see is a person who has become warped and twisted by his position of power and the poison of power. And it's funny, isn't it? Human beings know that power, they say absolute power corrupts absolutely, doesn't it, don't they? But yet we all lust after power. They talk of lusting after power. Someone described to me this week the difference between lust and power. I wasn't asking for a definition, by the way. I came across it. And uh, lust is the question, what will you do for me? Love is what can I do for you? So when you lust after power, you're saying, what can you all do for me? How can you lift me up? And we lust after it. We want influence. We want prestige. We want to be atop of the ladder. We desire power as human beings. But the truth is, few can handle power. Few human beings can handle power. Because power, much like the ring in Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you've had to endure these three films, like I do fairly frequently, I don't really care for Lord of the Rings. It's all right, I suppose. But it's like you're a Philistine if you don't like it, isn't it? Because you don't like Lord of the Rings. No, I don't, actually. It's boring. No, I said it. Too long and it's dull. Anyway, but much like the ring in Lord of the Rings, where the more you hold on to it, the more you tightly you grip it and keep it for yourself, the more it ruins your heart and the more you become twisted and warped. And just look at poor old Frodo uh, there. That's, he was such a nice guy at the beginning of the film and he's so warped and messed up by the end of it. But that's what power does. And in fact, only a few have the amount of humility needed to have real power. The higher you go in life, the lower you must bow down before God. The more, you hum, the, more high, the more people elevate you in your career or in church or in politics, the lower you must prostrate yourself and humble yourself before the king of kings. The only thing a pedestal is good for is kicking somebody off. You have been warned. We should take note that one of the temptations the devil loves to use on human beings is the temptation of power and influence. He tried to tempt Jesus with the same thing, didn't he? Taking him to the top of a high mountain, showing him all the kingdoms of the earth, saying just very simply, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Power is often achieved via the sale of our soul. Yet he still tempts people to compromise their ethics their morals, even their faith, 
with the promise of power. But when we get it, we're never quite the same again. We think to ourselves, I'll just compromise there. And when I get there, I'll just get those things back. You never will. You never do. It will never happen. What is power in the 21st century? Well, we're not all going to be prime minister. Frankly, none of us probably want to be prime minister. Frankly, there's a thankless task. But actually, isn't power in the 21st century to be a famous YouTuber? Or to have a million followers on something like Instagram? Isn't that real power? These are the people that influence our young people, actually. If you're under the impression that celebrities on TV are teaching our children how to think and how to feel and what to do, you're wrong. It's the people on YouTube. It's the people on social media. These are the ones that have followings in the thousands, in the millions, many of them being young. And people lust after being famous YouTubers or famous Instagrammers or whatever it might be, or Snapchatters, is that a thing? Is that, is that the correct verb for Snapchats? Um, and actually, the way you become a famous YouTuber is to sell your soul. And one of the ways to get lots of followers or subscribers is to do lots of dangerous things so that people will think, wow, that was exciting, and they'll subscribe and follow your channel. Because actually, the more followers you get, at some point, YouTube starts paying you. And that's the goal, isn't it? To be famous, to be powerful, and to get paid for it. This couple here, um, who you may or may not have spotted in the news this week, uh, an American couple, they decided a few months ago they wanted to be famous on YouTube. And so they've begun doing a variety of quite dangerous stunts to get followings and followers and subscribers. Sorry. I'm um, not sure what that was. I'm deaf in one ear, so that, that came from somewhere else. Um, and they decided that she would shoot him live uh, for a video and post it on YouTube. And they believed that if he held up a hardback book just about three metres away, that the, it would stop the bullet and that would get lots of people to click and subscribe. She killed her boyfriend. He was shot in the chest and he died, I think, a few hours later. She's now being prosecuted for first-degree manslaughter or second-degree manslaughter, all because... The lust for power and prestige was just so tempting, it was worth taking their life in their hands. Nebuchadnezzar, back to the story, comes across as an irrational man, doesn't he? In chapter 2, verse 3 to 5, I've already mentioned his response to his magicians and advisors, but I'll read it anyway. He said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Power has made him soulless and irrational. He has also become paranoid. In verse 8, they ask again, Please tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. In verse 8, and the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize this is what I firmly decided. So it's like someone trying to get the boo sign, isn't it? Or the hurry up sign. Anyway, um, and then he says, if you don't tell me the dream, there's one penalty. I'll kill you. He's become paranoid. Actually, he's furious over and over. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, this made the king so angry and furious they ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, we read again that he's angry. It says, furious 
with rage. And then chapter 3, verse 19 says, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He's angry over and over and over again. All he knows to do is to be angry when things don't go his way. So if you're in a position of leadership this morning, and you make knee-jerk, irrational decisions because you fear no one respects you, or if you're paranoid that people are trying to take your position, or let me say, if you're in a group of friends and you're the natural leader, because there's always one, isn't there? And you're getting upset because somebody else has an opinion that others go with. And you're getting paranoid and squashing them. You are in serious danger. If you're in any position, be it large or small, voluntary or paid, and you're more angry about it than joyful, you need to get home, stare in the mirror, and, take, and ask yourself some very difficult, hard questions. Because just maybe your position is beginning to twist you. Nebuchadnezzar reminds me of a stereotypical dictator, Idi Amin, King Jong-un, Robert Mugabe, and many, many, many more. Humanity keeps churning out people like Nebuchadnezzar because power doesn't save anyone. But the danger of power extends higher, doesn't it? Nebuchadnezzar um, is the benchmark from which we all should be running from. And if you're in any position, large or small, all of us need to be checking our hearts for shades of Nebuchadnezzar. If you find yourself reflecting even him a tiny bit, get on your knees. Ask God for forgiveness and change. So he has this dream, and despite um, getting a, an interpretation from Daniel in chapter, three, uh, chapter 2, verse 46 to 44, despite prostrating himself before Daniel and proclaiming his God to be the only true one, what does he do? In chapter 3, we see his real heart. He builds his own statue, and you notice that he builds it out of gold. What was the first statue of the head of gold representing? His kingdom. So he makes a replica statue. All of it is gold, because he wants all the power, all the kingdoms, forever and ever and ever. He makes that terrible law that if you don't bow down, I'm going to kill you. He's become insecure. He's become arrogant. And in fact, in chapter 4, when he becomes so arrogant... God fulfills the words of Proverbs 3.34 when it says God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. That phrase, pride comes before the fall, is something biblical. There's a reason why pride brings people down. God actually opposes the pride, the proud. There's a great story of Charles Spurgeon, that famous Baptist minister from years and years ago. He was up doing a sermon that went particularly well and somebody afterwards, a woman I think, came up to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, that was a brilliant sermon. And he said, uh, I know, the devil has already told me. She probably didn't encourage him much after that, to be fair. But he was so concerned that any part of him would become arrogant, that any compliment he deflected. Please don't mishear me. Uh, there are many Christians that think that they won't encourage people, they'll do that job for them. Um, I've had people say to me, I won't encourage you because I don't want you to get a big head. Um, that's wrong. That's so wrong. That's so wrong. Um, encourage people and pray they won't get a big head. Don't do that bit for them. <laughs> Let them grow in that themselves. Uh, and this is not me secretly asking for compliments after this sermon. In fact, you probably shouldn't give me any today because I should feel bad like I've asked for it. But encourage other people that come up here or serve in our church somewhere. Give them encouragement. So what is the message for us? Perhaps the message this morning is as simple as be careful of that promotion that you lust after. Maybe the message this morning is simply resist rushing up the ladder too quickly. Maybe the message is simply if you lead, 
match your leadership style, not against Nebuchadnezzar, but against Jesus Christ, who thought himself nothing, but took on the form of a slave, giving his life as a ransom for many. And perhaps the message is simply that we ought to be praying far more than we do for those in any form of leadership, particularly government. We whinge about them, but do we pray for them? And maybe also the message here is that we should be very aware as Christians that when ungodly power grows in a country, there will always be a conflict with our faith. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego hear the music and refuse to bow down, they're offered a clear choice by Nebuchadnezzar in verse 14 and 15. He says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the flute, harp, sorry, the, the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown into, immediately into a burning furnace and what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And their response is amazing. They say, they reply to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. He then throws them in the fire seven times hotter. And this is a sobering moment in this book. These guys have done nothing wrong. They've done everything he's asked except break the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, which is to have an idol and to worship other gods. But isn't it true that when you meet Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, this conflict was just inevitable? This was always going to happen to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego at some point. And let me tell you that in Europe, as Europe becomes less and less Christian, those of us that have a real faith, a faith that defines our opinions and our actions and our very lives will come into conflict with those in power. Let me promise you. And we will have a choice like Nebuchadnezzar that will we honour our God or go with the culture of our day? Will we fall in and agree and worship what our generation worships or will we worship Jesus Christ alone? You might well find yourself in a situation in a few years' time where choosing Christ leads to rejection of your family and friends, leads even to unemployment or loss of reputation and perhaps, yes, one day even your very life. But this story doesn't end with bad news, it ends with good news. Because when they fall into that fiery furnace, not only does God save them, although be aware they were prepared to die, they're met by someone in the flames. Someone who in Nebuchadnezzar's words looks like a son of the gods. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, it would be blessed if you're persecuted for me. And over the next four weeks, we're going to hear of their experiences over and over and over as they try and survive and honour their God in a culture that doesn't. So let this story inspire us this morning to be brave and to be bold, to stand for what's biblically true, to work hard wherever we are with grace whilst not compromising our faith. Let's realise that all of us will face the choice of of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and let's prepare our hearts for that day to stand firm even in the face of the heat of the furnace of our culture's disapproval. And let's know that even if our faith is hated and we're rejected because of Christ, 
we will meet him in the flames. So this week, be bold and be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. Let's pray. Lord God, we lift up, Lord, this, these three chapters, Father, a big chunk to look at. But Lord, we want to just be a people that serve you. We want to be a people, Lord, that put you first. Father God, give us hearts that are prepared for the day that will inevitably come. And we're not necessarily talking some Hollywood version of persecution. We're talking about, Lord, real situations that will affect us at some point where we will have to make that choice. Do I love Jesus or do I love being popular and well-liked by my culture? Father God, some of us here may face the prospect of losing our jobs or our money or our friends or even our family. But Jesus himself says that what we lose, family and friends, we will gain back two or three times over, much like Job in the Old Testament. Father God, may we be a people, Lord, not who are so weak, so lukewarm, but when culture says you can no longer think that, we just fall in line. May we be people that worship you and refuse to bow down to the idols of our day. And Lord, I want to pray for the family of that couple that I talked about from YouTube. Father, it's easy just to see people on the screen and forget they exist. We pray for this man's family, Lord, who have to endure the senseless death that their son has now gone through. And we pray for his girlfriend, Lord, who's got to live the rest of her life with the knowledge that she shot him for absolutely nothing. Bless them, we pray. Bring good out of this, I ask it. And I pray for people like YouTube that they would regulate what they do that they would care for our children and our young people and they would stop putting rubbish in front of them. Father God, I lift all these things to you in Jesus' name.